I'm Vanessa Ruck, also known as the girl on a bike, and I describe myself as a motorcycle rider, racer and adventurer. Right, so we're recording, yep. uh, hopefully. Um, so it's just going to be a casual chat like every other episode of this. Um, I'm not in any way a professional at doing this sort of thing. I'm just a guy bumbling around chatting to people and hopefully that encourages more people to chat to each other. That, that's the idea. It's nothing nothing too pro. Um, so the, the only question I do have is who are you and what do you do? That is a good question. I like it. So I'm Vanessa Ruck, also known as the girl on a bike, and I describe myself as a motorcycle rider, racer and adventurer. Now, obviously, this is a slightly more car-orientated focus, so people are probably wondering, like, why on earth is there a motorcycle rider chatting on here? And that is because I probably should also call myself a rally driver now, as I have just started to take up four wheels, which is pretty exciting. But my journey to being pretty much a motorhead, motorcycles, cars, is a little bit less usual than maybe some, and I've got a slightly less smooth background than maybe I'd like to hope with a pretty life-changing accident which brought me on the journey to where I am today basically. Well first off this isn't just for cars so you're all right being a motorcycle person <laughs> we're not prejudiced here um, but let's go into that backstory then like you, you can't kind of line up a I have a non-traditional story and then stop so we'll go in straight with that like how did you get to where you're doing what you're doing? Yeah, so I guess when I look around in the, the motorcycle world, you get a lot of people who are, you know, professionally riding, racing, doing this sort of stuff like I am. And they have been riding bikes since they were teeny tots, you know, schoolboy motocrosses and all that kind of stuff. I started riding motorcycles in my 30s, really, off-road. And I've now done some of the sort of toughest races in the world, which I'm pretty proud of. But... If we go back in time to prior to 2014, it's probably the best way to start giving you a picture of the sort of the journey that's brought me to where I am today, as it's not been kind of a, a wake up one day and decide to be a motorcycle racer. It's definitely been stepping stones through life and some sort of junctions. So prior to 2014, the easiest way to describe myself would be a absolute, complete and utter adrenaline junkie. I lived and breathed for extreme sports. Kite surfing was my big one. I went to the gym three, four days a week to keep fit. I cycled to work every day, 16 miles. If there was no wind at weekends, no worries. I'd rock climb, mountain bike, snowboard. I basically lived to physically push myself and mentally push myself in extreme sports. All my friendship circles, etc., followed all of that. So I was pretty fit and very active. Now, the 25th of March 2014 was a very normal Tuesday. I'd been in the office all day. I was account director in marketing. I got on my bicycle to cycle home from work. I was actually going to the wakeboarding lake to meet my husband and some friends for an evening and got about a mile down the road. Traffic light turned green in front of me. Amazing. Pedaling on through. But a car coming the other way decided not to stop at their red light. And they cut straight across in front of me, leaving me with nowhere to go. And literally like that, life as I knew it changed. 
Now, I wasn't a bleeding mess on the side of the road or anything really dramatic or graphic. I was taken to hospital in an ambulance. You know, I was pretty shaken up. I'd just been hit by a car. And I was discharged later that night with bruising. Now, if we fast forward seven years, which was really the bulk of my recovery, I've since had seven surgeries, including a reconstructed right shoulder and right hip. And it kind of worked out of one surgery a year, every year for seven years. So Jeez. the implications of bruising versus what actually happened to my body with the impact of that car, it gives you a bit of an idea of the sort of the fight and the battle it's been to try and get myself, ultimately try and get back to a point where I'm pain-free. And unfortunately, I've had to readjust my expectations. Pain-free isn't realistic for my home, my body. Uh, instead, getting to a point where I can adapt, I can cope, I can use various techniques, including painkillers, to manage my pain, but I can get up and try and make the most of every day and get rid of the excuses and, and fight on. So I live and manage with chronic hip pain now as a result. My shoulder's doing pretty good, but my hip is... Um, I'd say grumpy is probably a, a kind way to describe it. And my, my recovery physically has been pretty brutal. You know, like two reconstructed body parts, it gives you a bit of an idea of the amount of pain, like months and months of rehabilitation, bed-bound, dependent on my husband even to make it to the toilet, and not being able to put my own socks on. You know, I remember the first time I went downstairs for dinner after, you know, each of those hip surgeries. It's an amazing feeling making it to sit at a table. Um, but if I'm really honest with you, the, the physical recovery wasn't the hardest. The mental health recovery was considerably harder. And I was diagnosed with multiple mental health disorders in the aftermath, like depression, change disorder, which is for me, led to me no longer seeing me as me. I talk about myself in the third person because I wasn't me. I couldn't relate to the body I was in. It was broken and pathetic and I didn't see myself as me. I uh, Also, fear of the road. And I sort of got to a point where I realised that I wasn't okay and I'm really proud of myself for getting to that point. And I think for anybody battling any kind of struggles, mental health, self-doubt, self-hate, you know, any issues, ask for help. Having the strength to ask the help, to me, is the biggest sign of strength. And I, I encourage you to do it. I'm really proud of myself that I did. Unfortunately, um, there isn't like this big red button that when you ask for help, you suddenly press it and then woohoo, everything's fixed. It takes a lot of time a lot of work, a lot of crying for me, at least a lot of crying, a lot of pain, a lot of processing. But eventually I got to the point where I didn't necessarily learn to love my body, but I learned to accept it. And I learned to accept my situation because acceptance of your situation is absolutely critical to be able to do anything with it. If you don't accept what you're going through, how on earth could you do the things that are in your control to help you move out of it? You know, if you're there in denial, in hate, in anger at the driver, self-pity, you're not going to be getting up and going, right, what can I do to try and move myself forwards out of this situation? So that acceptance was, was really critical. And during my mental health recovery, my physical recovery, I would really describe the seven years as a roller coaster with highs and lows, like not a fun roller coaster where you're like, woohoo, this is amazing. A roller coaster was in the ups and the downs like the downs where I've had major surgery and I'm bed bound and I'm stuck staring at that same 
awful bit of paint on my bedroom ceiling. And then I start to heal, start to do my rehab, get a bit more active. Not necessarily get to a point where I can do my sports, but maybe get to a point where I could ride a motorcycle. And so I'd, I'd actually had a motorcycle very briefly at an earlier point in life, but I didn't really get motorcycling as such. It was a, a, a means of transport that I required as a student living on a remote island in the Bahamas. Uh, true story. But in the aftermath of the accident, I couldn't drive to work. Uh, sorry, I couldn't cycle to work. Sorry. And I was struggling driving to work because of the traffic, the cost of fuel, the parking. And I came up with this idea to get a motorcycle. Now, at this point, I'll be completely honest with you, Vanessa's little brain wasn't thinking about what a motorcycle meant, i.e. I've been clinically diagnosed with a fear of the road and getting a motorcycle. Um, hello, it means going on the road. <laughs> and I can't emphasize yeah. enough like how how terrifying it was getting on that bike and how every single bit of my inner survival instincts everything in me screamed this is a bad idea but there's a whole sort of array of things that helped me get on that bike and fight it but a part of that was I mean pure determination that that lady that hit me had taken so much away from me already I wasn't going to let her control me even more I, I had to get back out there as such but the first 50th 200th time I got on that bike it's terrified me there were there were tears there were breakdowns but I knew that with any kind of fear the more you expose to it the more you normalize yourself to it and with time and patience and kindness to your own mental health you can get through these things and so I just pushed on and what no one warned me with motorcycles is that they breed and that when you get one motorcycle, suddenly you're like, oh, I need another type. And then there's another type. And before you know it, you've got like seven motorbikes and you're fully addicted. Uh, it's like little black dresses. Apparently a little black dress, a little black dress. They're totally different. It's the same as motorbikes, you know. And as I kind of continued through my recovery, the Vanessa from prior to the accident with that burning addiction to adrenaline, the 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 love for extreme sports and everything, she was never really gone. She was just very broken. And so I was always trying to fight for how I could get fitter, stronger, really working on my rehab. How can I get back to the things I love doing? But my expectation management was always going to be a bomb for disaster. And even now, I know going back kite surfing, I'll compare myself to how I used to be how my body used to feel, how I used to be able to do it, how much pain I'm in now versus then. Whereas with off-road motorcycling, it's totally new. I don't have the comparison of what my body used to be like. And the idea to get my first off-road motorcycle was about six and a half, seven years ago. I was bed bound after one or my third surgery. So my first on my hip. And I just came up with this idea that I wanted to get my first dirt bike. And my husband's like, what? Come on, like, look at you. You can't even get to the toilet on your own. But surround yourself with supportive people that say yes when you come up with crazy ideas. And my husband is one of those. So we went out and got me a dirt bike. It was five months until I could even sit on it. Right, jeez. But it was, so sat, it was just there sat there as a reminder, as a goal. Yeah as a little voice going, come on, Vanessa, you need to find the energy to do your physio. And 
since the first time I rode that bike, I've had another four hip surgeries, but I have found the addiction, the love, the adrenaline of off-road and it's kind of escalated um, basically from there. And <laughs> I started racing about three years ago and I've been very focused on trying to improve my skills, you know, learn more on the mechanics, get better at riding, put myself well outside my comfort zone. Very often I, I question my life choices. Um, you know, when you're in the middle of the desert on your own, with a, a bike that's just broken down and you're facing a night in the dunes with a campfire that you're about to make with the uh, what energy you have left follow, having been riding for 11 hours all day. Yeah, you question your life choices. It's pretty scary, but there's something addictive about it as well. So, sorry, I realise you asked me one question and I pretty much just, like, talked. <laughs> this is probably the ideal way for this to go because I'm... <laughs> I love learning the stories and I love it when yeah. people just go and I get to yeah. sit and listen uninterrupted for this whole thing. My biggest problem is I, I interject too much and I'm always sat here going, oh, I should have just let them carry on. So if someone just <laughs> talks, I'm like, great, I could just sit here and not ruin this for anyone else because the, the conversation is about your story. It's not about me and my story. Everybody who's listened to my podcast pretty much knows everything I've ever done because I've talked yeah. to a fair few people. So it's great to to have someone go, here is everything that you could possibly want to know. I'll make this as easy for you as possible. I just get to sit here and effectively be a listener at this point. Um, so obviously that is quite a quite a traumatic journey to have gone through. Like normally when I have a guest on, we get to about an hour before kind of the mental health stuff kind of starts to come in as we become more comfortable in the conversation. And every so often I'll have like yourself or um, most recently Dan Mackin from Caffeine and Machine just straight in there like this was shit and it was really hard and I'm going to talk about it and I'm like perfect saves me effort to uh, to touch on it down the line so that that must yeah. have been such a, a journey of kind of rediscovering yourself learning how you can motivate yourself learning what works for you and then uh, as you already touched on like all this like accepting the circumstances that you're now in versus the circumstances you're in before and having to kind of process this horrible event that happened and all the blame that you obviously will have attributed to the person driving that car at that time and it must have been such a like a a range of emotion to go through and how how did you find that process how did you find the journey and like what worked for you in dealing with all of this stuff it's definitely been a journey uh if I could go back in time and give myself some of the tools I've got now to deal with my mental health and have them nine years ago, it certainly could have been a slightly smoother journey. Let's just say that. I'd say the acceptance is a really big one, but it's very difficult for, for anyone listening to go, okay, great, I'll accept. How do you just accept the situation? But it's almost like this realisation that, what do you have in your control? And if it's not in your control, you just got to let go of it. Because if you think about when you get angry, it's a physical feeling that you have in your chest, right? You can almost, you can feel anger and it's a really twisted, knotted, toxic kind of energy. And if you think about my anger to the driver, for example, me being angry at her and hating her 
does, does nothing to change my situation. It's not going to reverse it. It's not going to get rid of it. All it does is make my current situation worse. And it's, it's not necessarily about forgiveness. It's about just letting go and realizing that that anger is actually pointless and makes my situation worse. And it's more about like that shift in perspective. It's not, it's, mindfulness is a really important part of everything that I do I use it multiple times a day to deal with my my pain and that mindfulness kind of links to everything including like the acceptance it's about being more aware that you actually are in control of your thoughts and I would say me prior to the accident probably believed that almost certainly believed that my emotional state how I was feeling the the thoughts I'm having was a result of what was going on around me so you know if someone was like horrible to me angry nasty unkind you know I'd take that on you know I'm going to be angry back I'm upset you've hurt my feelings nobody has the right to control my emotions I am in control of the thoughts what I let come into my mind not them and the mindfulness to me is realizing that I'm in control of my thought process, not other people and not my situation. So one of the easiest way to try and describe what I mean by this is thinking about my pain. I live and manage pain on a constant basis and I've recognized that I get initial trigger thoughts is what I call them, which can lead me in different directions depending on how I feel process those initial thoughts so my hips hurting thought comes into my mind my hips hurting and I've got two options at this point now one option is to go with that thought and focus on yeah you know what my hip is hurting this sucks why is it hurting so much this is unfair why did it have to happen why can't they fix my body I wish that like life could be different why can't I have a different body I'm really annoyed like stupid driver start really dwelling on like how much my hip hurts this really sucks and at the end of it I will guarantee get upset I'll focus on enough to the point that my emotions will come into it I'll get upset I'll probably start crying husband will probably get upset because I'm upset and at the end of it I'm in the exact same body with the exact same pain but now I'm upset scenario two my first thought comes in my hip really hurts okay What's in my control? Do I need to stand up? Do I need to sit down? Do I need to do some physio? Do I need to take a painkiller? Do I need to stop what I'm doing? Do I need to just distract myself? Call a friend, have a chat, listen to some music. What's in my control to do with that situation? We're not going to go there, thoughts, and dwell on it because I don't want to get upset. But what is in my control to try and deal with the fact that I'm in pain? or to distract myself, to help myself with the fact that I'm in pain. So at the end of it, I'm in the same body with the same pain, but I'm working out what's in my control and not letting my thoughts go into my conscious and all the way through to my emotions where I then get upset. And that mindfulness can work with stress, anxiety, upset, pain. There's so many areas where actually, if we take a step back, process the situation as to what we can actually deal with like say when you get really stressed and overwhelmed you've got so much to do on your to-do list you haven't got enough time people are demanding stuff if you take a step back and go right what do I need to do what can I prioritize what's in my control out of my control 
it's actually amazing how much more we can process and focus and get stuff done. Like there's so many areas in life where that ability to be more aware of our conscious thoughts can help. You know, depression, self-hate, imposter syndrome, staring at the mirror and hating what you look back. Being more aware of the power of our thoughts and the fact that we can say no to our thoughts and divert them to something different and something more positive, something that can take action is probably the biggest thing that's helped me get through my journey and stay positive. That's amazing. Yeah, it's it's something I've encountered. So my other half is a she's a psychologist, like an actual like doctor of. Wow. Um, so she's my go. I have like a living therapist, basically. <laughs> we joke that I'm just a, a longest case study yet. Um, <laughs> but a lot of the time. If I get in a situation where I'm frustrated or I'm wound up or something like that, the first thing she says is, what can you control? Like, what about this situation do you have control over? What can you change? And what options do you have to make this situation different? So to to kind of hear it from a complete, completely different person, it's, it's a very common thread in that these are skills that do help. And having that mindset around... Right, I can't control any of this stuff. It's just going to make me sad if I don't think of things that can help me right now or ways to turn this situation into something that I have some control over. It makes such a huge difference. Like Even something simple as like road rage. You're mm. on the motorway and someone cuts you up. Your options are get really pissed off, potentially put yourself in a dangerous situation, or let them just go and kind of change lanes, yeah. move away, slow down, do whatever, just to kind of separate yeah. yourself from the situation. It's yeah. such a small thing that makes such a big difference. And I'm yeah. such a hypocrite because I'm the worst for road rage. <laughs> um, but it, it, it is yeah. a real skill and it's one of those where the more that you practice it, the easier it becomes to, to implement. Um, same with kind of setting a routine for your day. The more that you kind of practice that, the easier it becomes and the, the more helpful it is and things things kind of take this repetition not with any skill or any activity the the more you the more you try the better you get the, the whole ten thousand hours thing is is a yeah. real thing um yeah. so obviously you've now got to a point where you're able to kind of manage the situation you, you've got this skill set you've got an understanding of what's happened what's going on and how to kind of best manage everything that you have to live with on a on a daily basis how how has it changed from kind of reaching kind of a point where you're in a management situation to then go, right, what do I now want to do? What do I want to explore? What do I want to experience? You, you've got. Yeah. There's... So I'd say the first thing to say there is that I'm not totally in control. I can sit right. you sit here and tell you that I have these techniques and these tools that I use. But at the end of the day, I'm still a human and I still have highs and lows and good days and bad days and I have my have my moments like everybody else I'm not going to sit here and try and tell the world that I've got it all sussed out I haven't I'm just a normal cracked, human sorted. as well yeah exactly and I think it's really important to recognize that energy motivation our ability to take control of our thoughts all comes in ebbs and flows and that's totally normal and you know, people often look at me and think, oh, she's so strong and capable and amazing. And I'm like, I'm not the whole time. I'm human yeah. too. 
I think one of the things that really helps me on the motivation side and the, the drive, the energy side is goal setting. Um, you could probably relate me to like a dog with a stick or a donkey with a carrot on the end. I really like setting goals and chasing them. One is that it gives you focus. It gives you something to work towards. And I think having a big stretch goal and then lots of little goals that will get you towards it. So you've got everyday wins, everyday things to pat yourself on the back for, feel like you're making achievements, you know, have that little bit of success that get you towards your big goals. It's that classic thing, like you can't climb a mountain in one step. But if you want the goal of climbing a mountain, have that. And you might never make it, but at least if you try, you might get halfway up. That's okay too. But then having the smaller goals of being like, right, I'm going to make it to base camp or I'm going to make it to the, to the toilet. I'm going to make it to brushing my own hair or making it outside to sit in the garden um, and watch the sun go down. All those smaller steps were things that I could work on towards the idea of getting on an off-road motorcycle for the first time. Or let's say the first big race I decided to do, Red Bull Romaniacs. When I signed up for that race, there was absolutely no way I was capable of doing it. But by signing up, putting my money on the line, I had a year to chain, train and I had the motivation to make it happen. Um, so that kind of goal setting, I think, is really important. I always love thinking about if you have a dream of making something happen. It's a dream. If you set a goal alongside that dream of something that you're actually going to do and maybe write it down it's going to be a goal right but if you then write down all the steps and the things that you're actually going to do it will become a reality it's like the difference between like fluffy stuff in your head and locking on so that kind of goal setting journey i think is probably the biggest thing for me as motivation i'm also very aware that for me, if I don't sleep enough and I don't put good stuff in my body, like I don't eat a good nutritious diet and, you know, give my body, you are what you eat. If I don't do those two things, my motivation, my energy is like, you might as well not bother. So it's about working out what works well for your body as well. I know if I eat rubbish food, I feel rubbish and my motivation yeah, is gone. So there's sort of like a combination of you setting the right goals, looking after yourself, doing your physio. So again, I've said it already, and I'm sorry if it sounds repetitive, but it's about working out what's in your control. Getting enough sleep, eating well, looking after, you know, your rehab, your physio, those things are in your control. It's similar to the analogy of it's it's not how long the ladder is, it's how many rungs you add to it. Like you can climb the ladder, you just have to make it manageable amounts of, of steps to get to the top. Oh, I like um, that. Instead of having big knee-high steps, have little steps. It's much easier. Yeah. Love it. Um, which it's similar kind of concept to the mountain goal. Um, mm. But it, it it's because it works. These analogies exist because people have used them and they, they work... F for motivational things like the thing i struggle is um i recently went to the doctors for potential like adhd so it's really hard to focus on that sort of thing i really struggle with that but if i get lots of regular like dopamine rushes and releases and things like that i work really well 
So mm. doing stuff that has lots of variety and pulls my attention in different directions, that helps my kind of energy and motivation levels, which is why I do all of this variety of stuff around the Tacona idea is that it's enough variety to hold attention. Um, mm. And then the other stuff is where I struggle. So I'm the first to go get an alarm clock, read before you go to bed, don't have your phone. And then I'll be on TikTok till like 11 o'clock at night and wake up at six feeling like absolute shit. <laughs> it's, it's really easy to go, these are great. <laughs> but yeah. then it's really hard to go, oh yeah, I do that every day. Like, no, and similar to what you were saying about how you've not got this like, right, I'm fixed now. Everything's hunky-dory. It takes a lot of kind of continuous work and a lot of effort to, to kind of just keep going, keep moving forward and yeah. keep kind of following these paths and working towards those goals it's it's very easy to fall off and i think it's great that you acknowledge that that does happen from time to time it's not a smooth ride there isn't a magic button where everything goes ding all done everything's fine now crack on um so i'm guessing that obviously you said you, you got that dirt bike and then it was months before you could actually go on it once you got out on that bike and you started kind of riding motorbikes again how did that go from, oh, I enjoy doing this to I want to do this in the Red Bull Romaniacs rally? Like, how, how, how did that kind of come about? So it started with just gentle green laning around in the UK, which are sort of non-paved roads legal to ride in, in the UK. Just playing around with, with my husband and some friends and then made more friends ended up going to some little training places where there's maybe a bit more fun stuff going on. Um, ended up trying to do one of the, a hare and hound practice day, which is sort of a, it's a non-competitive track that you can play around on. And I quickly realized that I really enjoyed being on a, on a motorcycle and, and riding it. And actually my skill was quite good at it. It was a new thing to focus on. Obviously, I had quite a lot of time where I was then off the bike for more surgery and rehab. And then each time I was off, I was really focused on building the strength to be able to then get back riding again. And I think the the big uh, the big push to start racing in the first place was actually getting to do a training day with a pro rider, Paul Walton, where we did some sort of hard enduro style skills and at the end of it he was like you need to do valleys extreme which is a a race in south wales it's notorious for being sort of one of the toughest hard enduro races in the uk and uh, i was like you're ridiculous i'm gonna die i mean it's got extreme in the name what are you talking about and uh yeah whatsapp messages over the next week he sort of wore me down and eventually i was like all right then let's have a look at this thing and so my husband and I rocked up to do the sort of practice morning the day before the race, thinking maybe we'll try and manage one lap. Like that would be pretty cool. Managed like two laps. Absolutely loved it. Was buzzing. Uh, the stewards and race marshals were like, just get it signed up. Do the race tomorrow. Next thing I know, I'm on the start line of this race about 20 metres in front of me is a thigh-high plastic drainage pipe that you have to get over. Then you go into a rock garden, then there's skips. And I'm, I'm, I was crying on the start line with the fear. Like, I wanted the earth to open up and take me anywhere but where I was, like, way out of my depth. My husband and I are on our Cardo intercoms talking, and I'm basically like, Alex, I'm not going to get over this pipe. Uh, you need to, you got to have to help me. And he was like, okay, I'll get off the line fast, get over the pipe, and then I'll help you over it. 
don't worry. We're gonna, we're just here to have fun. Chill out. Just do your best. Blah, blah, blah. Anyway, freaking flag goes and it's like off the line. Suspension, brap, and I absolutely nail it. Straight over this pipe like a boss. I, I mean, I, it was incredible. I still don't know how I did it. Round the corner, hit the rock garden. I'd picked my line already walking the course. Straight off, already overtaking people who have fallen off at the rock garden. And I just carried on riding, trying to ignore everybody else, focus on my line, and managed a silver finish, which is based on how many laps you do, you get into a category of a gold finisher or a bronze finish. And it was like drugs. The satisfaction, it was horrifically hard. It was sweaty, it was brutal. I dragged my bike around. I mean, it's brutal, but the endorphins, the adrenaline, it just felt absolutely incredible. And it was on the way home from that race that was a three hour drive. By the time we got home, we'd signed up for Red Bull Romaniacs. And right, there okay. was there was no way we had the skill. I mentioned that earlier on and we'd set the goal. And then sort of, you know, in training for that, we were doing other races, enduro races, the UK hard enduro races. And I just realised that I absolutely hate being on the start line. I mean, it's the most disgustingly terrifying thing. But by the time you make it to the finish line, you're just so alive. And so... I mean, people, people listening, I have been riding off-road for six and a half or seven years. I still remember the time, six, probably five years ago even, where a curb scared me. And now I will ride over a log or a rock garden. It's not like overnight I suddenly got the skill. It's been progressive. It's been about constantly pushing my comfort zone, moving that line a little bit more, you know, doing a slightly bigger hill climb, going down a slightly longer hill, going down a slightly steeper hill. And every time it absolutely scares the life out of me. But you just slowly push that line and normalize it. And a curb that scared me six years ago doesn't scare me now because I'll do a 100 meter hill climb. But it didn't happen overnight. It's been very progressive and gradual and a constant kind of thirst and decision to really focus on the fact the only way to grow is outside of your comfort zone. And so constantly yeah, trying to push it. And there's that, uh, that kind of saying that bravery isn't not being scared. It's being scared and doing it anyway. Like It takes a lot of yeah. bravery to, <laughs> to stand on that start line, absolutely bricking it, floods of tears, and then still go. Yeah. And I imagine the, the relief and the reward is such a rush after you've gone, I felt like absolute, like I was in pieces, but I did it anyway, and I, I made it through, and overcoming that challenge and that difficulty must, must really like compound on top of that sense of achievement. Absolutely. And then when you add in my background and my pain and my body, it's almost like I'm proving to myself that I still can. It's almost like I've got my own chip on my own shoulder of like of having been so broken and so bed bound when you're not stuck in that bed. The the additional high of fighting on is even is even greater somehow. Oh, I can imagine. You, you're effectively going, this is what the person in the bed was wishing that they could do again. Here we are. Let's do it. Let's make the most of being back out on the bike. So obviously you've, you've 
started and you signed up for the Red Bull Romania. So I don't know what that is. Would you explain that event yeah. to me? So I'm I'm guessing the fact that it has Red Bull in the name has gives a little bit of an inkling as to the fact that it's pretty darn extreme because Red Bull don't do anything by uh, small or halves. It's uh, one of the hard enduro I ride res hard enduro rounds around the world. Uh, the easiest way to describe hard enduro is if you were to stand there and look at the terrain, uh, you probably stand there and go, yikes, I can't walk through that. Like rock gardens, ditches, riverbeds, hill climbs, roots, mountains. It's in the Carpathian Mountains in Romania. And not only have you got to get through that, you've got to do it on a motorcycle that's 100 plus kilograms. So the skill and the precision of the riding, the physicality of it is, uh, is pretty brutal. It was a, well, a six-day race, prologue on five days racing, riding for maybe five and a half hours a day through the Carpathian Mountains. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's pretty tough going. I obviously didn't do... The, there's five different classes of like how hard it is. Um, no, six. And I did the, the middle one. So the year I did it, there were five then. or yeah, there were five or six hundred riders the year I did it, and there were six females. That Jesus. Year. And how many have you finished? Ooh, of the females, I don't know. Of or, the overall well, riders, of, of yeah, anyone. considerable a considerable number don't finish. That's for sure. Yeah, I that's... don't actually know the stats for that race. So, um, like, if you take the Qatar International Baja, I know that's that, 46% finished that race. That was the first desert rally I ever did. Peak riding temperature was 52 degrees. Jesus. It was disgusting. It's, there's nothing about it apart from the, oh, I did that, that invites you to go and do it. <laughs> like the, the challenge is obviously the reason why you go and do it it's the yeah. this is going to be ridiculously tough and you will get such a rush from having done it but other than that there is no reason anyone on the planet would, would be like hey that seems like a laugh oh great can't wait to nearly die at every corner like when you're getting into these events how much of that sits in your head and how much of it is oh it's going to be horrible and we're going to do it because it's horrible you do enjoy moments of these races. So in, in a few weeks' time, I'll be going to Morocco for the Morocco Desert Challenge, which is the second biggest rally raid in the world after the Dakar. I will be, unfortunately, the only female on the start line on a motorcycle again. And that race I'm expecting to be incredibly difficult. You're doing serious mileage off-road. You're navigating via roadbook, which is the paper scroll on your handlebars with symbols, compass bearings and, and kilometres. And you're surviving in the desert at race pace, trying to keep a bike upright in sand, in riverbeds, in, in rocks, in all kind of brutal terrain. Racing for anywhere. I think my longest day rally racing is 13 and a half hours. Eight days in a row. I'm hoping my days will be more like eight or nine hours. Uh, depends on, you know, how many times you get lost and how many issues you have. And, yeah, I'm expecting it to be brutal hard. But you do have moments where, I mean, you're in the middle of the desert on your own, surviving. Ah, it's, it's, there's nothing like it. It's like a drug. It's, it's incredible. The feeling when you get to the finish line is is really the, the biggest high because you've 
you fought to get to the end of it. And if you think about some of these endurance races or doing a marathon or something, I mean, the average person that does a marathon does it in what, like five, six hours, maybe. And I'm not downplaying what a marathon takes. A marathon is a really incredible achievement. But as a comparison, to do a marathon, you literally have to do one foot, the other foot, one foot, the other foot, and just keep going for a really long time, right? On a motorcycle in the desert, you are constantly fighting the terrain and reading it and the, the speed of it, the sand, the rocks, the boulders, the unexpected things that hit your wheels. You're constantly correcting and fighting that bike to keep at race pace whilst reading that piece of paper on the handlebars and not getting lost, whilst carrying everything that you need to be able to survive for the whole day. You're sleeping in a tent at night. Um, there's sand in places where it shouldn't be for days on end. It's, it is brutal. I'm trying to sell it to you because of how amazing it is and I feel like I'm actually making it less appealing, but it's amazing. I'm I'm not signing up next year. You've not pushed me to. to I'm not going to go and buy a bike. You know, I'll, I'll see you at the start line. Um, but I, I can understand exactly what you mean to a certain extent. Um, I've not done deserts or anything like that, so I haven't got the specific kind of. Oh yeah. Oh, it's just like last Sunday. No, I've not got anything comparatively like that. But I can appreciate the the difficulty and the perseverance. I used to do a bit of mountaineering and stuff like that, where it's like you're in the snow it's really horrible to be there and it's not very comfortable and you don't really want to be there in the moment and something can go wrong like we got caught in almost like a blizzard so it was just white everywhere you've got no sense of what direction you're supposed to be in you just find a bit of shelter and you hunker down and go this is awful and I hope it stops soon enough but we're going to have to keep going because you know that's your only choice that's the only thing you've got control over is well we've got to keep pushing on yeah and that, yeah. that kind of sense of like you get through the horrible bits or you fight the terrain for the for the full week. But every so often you'll you'll come around a crest or you'll come over a hill and you'll just have a, like a moment of clarity of, well, I can see everything that I was hoping to see while I was doing this. And it that kind of stuff makes it a lot more worthwhile. And I, I imagine they're the memories that you take home with you, not the, oh, I was foot deep in sand for an hour when something happened. You have that that moment where everything is just perfect and that's hopefully what you take back home with you and makes you want to go again the next year yeah i think there's an element of the finish line and maybe the first few days you never want to go into the desert ever again in your life it's the worst thing ever um probably similar to like most women who have a baby like never again but your emotions are very well not you're good your your hormones your mind is very good at like softening the worst parts and strengthening the good parts and sure enough you want another baby again or something in a few years I'm just presuming I don't have kids and sure enough a couple of weeks later or days later you're like right when am I signing up to my next race I feel sadistic already <laughs> yeah yeah I used to do um, mm. MMA and that hurts like really hurts and you're like why am I doing this to myself I, I've got a bruise on my eye and my arms are sore and everything hurts and then in about an hour you're like right well, what am I doing again? When am I getting back in? Like, let's go. Like, you just get such a kind of like a rush from from anything that has any amount of adrenaline. Mm. It's so addictive. Like you said, like prior to bikes, you were an adrenaline junkie and you're just yeah. chasing that next like, oh my God, I can't believe I survived that. Let's do it again. Like that's That seems to be the thing of, 
oh, I got very lucky there and didn't die. Let's go and see if it'll happen twice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, it's true. Um, it's probably worth mentioning, linking back to the mental health conversation before, if you are in a low, absolutely force yourself to get off your bottom and go and do some form of exercise as well because the endorphins, dopamines, all that stuff that will get released will give you a lift. And it can take yeah, a lot of energy to make that happen. Even walk. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like... We've got slightly nicer weather at the minute, which means it's a bit easier to go for a walk. And it's amazing how much of a difference that makes. Mm. Like, just an hour out in sunshine can hugely uplift a really crappy day. Um, or just, like, I used to do a lot of rock climbing. I sound like I've done everything, don't I? I've gone through my three mm. things, that's it. Um, mm. And I, I went yesterday for the first time, went bouldering for the first time in, like, two years. And I got home and my fingers were twice as big. I couldn't get my ring off. <laughs> like I'd put it back on after and then my hands swelled up and I was like oh shit I can't get this off um, my hands hurt they were raw like my shoulders are tired my forearms are still tight and I just sat like really chuffed I was like I've managed 45 minutes and I'm really happy with myself and I feel really good and it's it's so strange how much of a difference it can make but it's so worthwhile yeah um, and on, on the kind of the, the the mental health side linking it to your endurance stuff obviously you said you spend large portions of that time on your own how much of doing these events is kind of being in your own head for long periods of time and how, how do you manage that yeah there's a huge element of that i think so when you're doing this kind of desert motorcycle rally racing there is so much going on you don't actually get that much time to be in your head because to, to read the terrain, to ride at race pace and to stay on the navigation, there's no GPS, there's no like dot or line. If you get lost, you have to go back through a piece of paper to work out where you were last 100% sure you were right, reset and try again. So you are so mentally and physically engaged, you almost don't get the capacity for anything else, which I think is one of the reasons why I love it so much, because I don't have the capacity for my pain. When I get off the bike at the end of the day, it hits me like an absolute freight train. But when I'm actually in that moment, I am in pure survival, alive, escaped. It, it's just absolutely incredible. Uh, when you get lost and you're suddenly or your bike breaks and you're stuck out there, whew, you seriously have moments on your own in your head, um, which it can be pretty scary. And I'd say the mindfulness is really important on that. So uh, I had a night in Tunisia last year where I... My bike electrics went uh, and yeah, so I was, that was me done. I had to be wait, wait for to be rescued. Now this day in the race, 32 vehicles had to be rescued, including 16 motorbikes. And I was the furthest of all the motorbikes that got rescued. So I'm going to claim that. But <laughs> I, when my bike broke, I had 45 minutes left of, of light. And I went into right. I know the boogeyman Sandman is real. I know I'm going to be terrified in the desert at night. I've been told by the organisers to expect it to be until tomorrow if you have an issue to be rescued. So make sure you've got your emergency kit with you. So I knew I was facing a night in the sand dunes and I had 45 minutes of light. My head torch wasn't going to last all night. It was going to be pitch black, freezing cold and I was alone. 
So I went immediately into, right, what's in my control? What do I need to do? I got all of my kit out. I worked out where everything was. I made a little camp. I took all of my clothes off so that they'd dry in the sun because I was a sweaty mess. I had 45 minutes of desert heat left to dry it all, put it all back on. I spent half an hour collecting everything I could possibly find in sight of my bike because I couldn't lose my bike uh, or leave sight of it because that was what was pinging to the organisers where I was. And I made this massive pile of sticks and grass and whatever I could find in the dunes that would burn. I worked out my food. I had enough to have something to eat at about 9pm, something for maybe one or two o'clock and then something for in the morning. And I had enough water to just gently sip it all night. I took my emergency electrolytes, my vitamin D, all that kind of stuff. With 15 minutes, 10 minutes of light left, I went, right, let's light the fire. Turns out it's not so easy to light a fire in the desert. My last resort would have been petrol off the bike, right? But thankfully I, I got it going. And I then just tried to lie there and chill out. It was pitch black. I definitely started to freak out. You hear noises, you see things. But I had a fire. I wasn't on my own. I had the crackling, the comfort, that kind of earth. I had the light of the fire. I had the warmth of the fire. I know animals aren't going to come near me because animals don't like fire. And it wasn't dark. And every time I started to freak out and panic, I just focused on the fact that, you know what, the organisers know where I am. They're going to come and get me. I'm not cold. I've got food and water. It's not dark. You know what, Vanessa? You might be wanting to freak out right now, but you're okay. And I'm actually really proud of myself for being able to like work through those build-ups. You know, that kind of like build-up of panic you get and just calm it down. I was lying there on the ground. Uh, the wind started to pick up, which freaked me out. So I thought, right, what can I do? I put my goggles on so the sand doesn't go in my eyes. I put my earplugs back in so that I can't hear the noise of the wind. Uh, made a little bit more of a, a bank of sand around the fire so it wasn't getting blown out. You know what? You're all right, Vanessa. And I managed to stay really, really calm, which for someone who couldn't have a night home alone in my house back at home, we, we're in the very rural, um, was pretty huge. Uh, I was really proud of myself. When they came to rescue me, I had seven and a half hours in the pitch black and they came and got me in the middle of the night. They were like, what? You made a fire? Apparently I'm the first person they've ever rescued that had a fire. And I'm like, but why would we be told to carry a lighter if it's not to make a fire? Like, it's freezing. Other people that they rescued were like sat there in the pitch black shivering. And I was actually, I, I wasn't okay, but I was okay. Yeah, uh, you were uh, full Bear grills then. You were like, yeah. oh, 10 more minutes and I've been drinking my own pee. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, yeah, you're like, where's that snake? I need to... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But uh, yeah. that must have been, again, like that's such a, an insane story. How, how was your weekend? I spent seven hours in the desert <laughs> around my own little fire. I can't believe nobody yeah. else made a fire, though. Surely that's like the first thing that you do. Like, first thing that comes to head is, oh, let's start a fire. It's dark and it's cold. Let's fix both of those problems in one go. Yeah, yeah, but is I guess a, a people react. I, no, I think people just react, react differently and... My my instincts were to try and work out how I can make this as least scary as possible. That was really bad grammar. I mean, it sounds, you know, in some ways it sounds really romantic. You know, night in the dunes of a campfire, I saw shooting stars. 
there was nothing romantic about it. If my husband had been there, it would have been in a totally different experience. But being on your own, hundreds of kilometres from anything, I mean, it really was terrifying. Well, I, I imagine it puts that kind of reality into the situation where you're like, all right, this would be great if I had like a very easy get out of jail free card. Yeah. But uh, you don't have that safety net at that moment. Like, yeah, someone should be on the way, but until they're there, you don't know that they're on the way. So you, you have to yeah. go, this is potentially really bad. Let's make it as least bad yeah. as we can and, and hope for that person to come over the, the horizon and, and sort everything out. But like, it, I just, I have no reference for what that would have been like. It's mm. such a, like a, an out of this world kind of experience. But I was going to say, I bet the stars were lovely, though. So much. They were. <laughs> it was incredible. It took us, um, I think it was two and a half hours in the rescue vehicle to get back from the from the dunes to the bivouac. Got back to the bivouac at 3.30 in the morning, handed my bike over to my mechanics, and they said, right, go to sleep, wake up in the morning like you're racing, we'll get your bike fixed. Two hours sleep, alarm goes off, back on the start line at 6 a.m., having been riding for 11 hours the day before, a night in the dunes, a night rescue, two hours sleep, back on your bike. If you'd said to me, could you do, you know, another day's racing based on that? I'd be like, no way, no chance. You couldn't function. But my body went, right, let's go. I put the right nutrition in me. I got back on that bike and I went back out into the desert. And it's insane what the body and the mind can do when you put yourself in these kind of environments. Now that next day, uh, four and a half hours later, so 10.30 in the morning, I burnt my clutch out on the bike. Oh, I was gonna say, were you more nervous about the bike on the next day? And then it, it got you anything? Yeah, so I'm then stuck in the dunes again. Back out, stuck in the desert on my own. Now at this point, it was actually kind of cool because all the other competitors were coming past. I kind of had front row seats and they will throw water out the windows and food at me because it's compulsory for the bigger vehicles, the trucks, the cars, pickups, to carry spare food for the motorbikes because we really are vulnerable. Um, but seven and a half hours later, it's like the magic number, isn't it, for me? I was, <laughs> I was not okay. It was 45 degrees heat. I had no shade. And my body started to go and shut down and I realised that I wasn't okay. It felt like I had my motorcycle helmet on and someone had a branch just smacking me on the head. God. I didn't have a helmet on and there was no one there, so there was definitely no one smacking me on the head with the, the helmet. And I realised someone had actually died at this event two days before from a similar situation. And I was like, you know what, I need, I need help, I'm not okay. So it was time to hit the emergency button. And I knew they were coming to get me but the emergency button is sitting there and going, right, race control, I need you to drop everything, get a helicopter in the air and come and get me. Now, the psychological implications, when you're sat there in the desert, I hadn't had enough, I hadn't crashed, I wasn't bleeding, I was just hot and I'd been sat there for seven and a half hours. So the psychological element of being like, right, race control, I need you right now was huge. It took me three attempts to actually press the button because I kept panicking and stopping. Uh, that was once I got to the button because I realised I could no longer walk anymore. I was like so disorientated and wobbly. Um, the the helicopter then came uh, and I sort of saw it in the air. It probably took about half an hour to get to me. And then it flew off and left me. 
I had the fifth panic attack of that day and it was the biggest and the worst panic attack I've ever had in my life. I was currently lying in the fetal position with a scarf around my head trying to breathe in the sandstorm with my head feeling like it was gonna, I, I mean, I felt like my body was shutting down and this helicopter left me. And I'm Why then trying to work land? out, well, I'm trying to work this out, you know, maybe they've seen me and I'm not, I'm not an emergency, like you're making it all up, Vanessa, you know, full blown panic attack. About 10 minutes later, I suddenly feel a hand and a voice. Turns out a helicopter can't just land in sand dunes and it had to land like 500 meters away. And this poor guy had to come and like get me, drag, carry, pick, pull, drag me across the dunes back to the helicopter. And I got in a lot of trouble from the medics for not pressing the button sooner because I was very close to the edge. And it was, it was scary. Now, when you're lying in a bivouac med tent with four doctors run around you who are not calm, yeah, yeah, if they're not calm, then you're like, oh, this is bad. Yeah. Like, they're supposed yeah. to be calm in this situation. Yeah, I mean, the med team were absolutely incredible. And three drips later, a load of painkillers, you know, they got me back. But apparently it was quite close. And um, the next day I couldn't race because my bike was still out there in the desert. And medically I, was, I wasn't able to. But the following day I was allowed to carry on. Now, I finished this race. I was the first female to ever enter, first female to ever finish. You, your, your rank is based on how, how well you perform and how many, you know, you'll finish your time, etc. So I got penalties for the fact that I didn't finish that day. But overall, I came 33rd of 55 motorcycles. To give That's you a amazing. perspective of like, I didn't do badly. I carried on. But, um, but I guess I go to spoiler alert, the fact that I did finish. But um, what you get penalties for not racing. That following night, my bike's ready to go, going back into the desert the next day. And I woke up having the biggest night terror of being stuck in the desert again. And I went, you oh, know understandable. what? I can't do it. I'm done. I'm out. I cannot. I don't have the mental strength to be stuck in the desert again. And so I basically pulled out of the race. I've done what I can. I've bitten off more than I can chew. Um, that's all I've got. Eventually, I got myself back to sleep. Uh, you know what it's like when you wake up, you're full of adrenaline, you're scared. Eventually, I got back to sleep. I woke up in the morning. Where's my bike? Back out into the desert. And I carried on and I made it to the finish line. Um, I think there's an element of I, I'd signed up to be there. And I think yeah. the most powerful thing out of that race was the fact that it made me realize that I'd taken back control of my life. Up until that point, the hardest thing I'd ever done was getting through the accident. Now the hardest thing I've done is in my control and I chose to do it. And it was a very empowering feeling. Oh, amazing. I, I imagine it was such a, like a pivotal point for you then. Yeah. Um, so by the sounds of it, it's better to get stuck in the desert at night than at midday. Because you nearly died in midday, but you just... <laughs> I made a campfire at night. chilled out. Yeah, you had a really nice evening once you'd been rescued on reflection. It's all right, actually. Do that again if there was someone nearby. Um, so the, the takeaway yeah. is get, get stuck at night then and make yeah. sure you've got enough supplies to, to get rescued. Yeah, that's um, fair. I like that. <laughs> so with all this having happened, you're like, right, let's go to Morocco and do another one. 
Yeah, I think for a couple of weeks, I was never going to go to the desert ever again. I definitely had a bit of post-traumatic stress. I remember the first time I heard a helicopter. I got the heebie-jeebies, that's for sure. Uh, but the body does some weird things. The adrenaline and the, the satisfaction. Yeah, I'm going back into the desert. I've done, this will be my sixth desert rally. Amazing. Like, hats off to you for just yeah. keep doing it. Like, it's such a... It still terrifies me. Yeah, I bet. But we're back to the, the start line at your first off-road race, though, aren't we? It was, mm. I'm never going to get over that pipe. And now you're like, right, day one of six in the harshest terrain on the planet, let's go. You've consistently yeah. shown yourself that you can just keep pushing. Um, yeah. To kind of, you've, you've mentioned a few times that you're either the only female in the race or one of a few. Why do you think it is such a there's such a lack of, of, of women getting involved in, in doing these events. What do you think is the reason for that? I think there's an element of sometimes in life you need to see something being done to know you can do it. And there aren't many doing it, so not many girls see it as a possibility. Like little kids aren't seeing women out there doing this stuff, so it's not in there. Sometimes you have to see to believe, right? But I also do think that these races are ridiculously extreme and hard, and I can understand kind of why someone wouldn't want to do it when you think about the fact that i am a, a small female doing it on the exact same bike carrying the exact same kit and weight on a smaller body frame body to weight bike ratio is much harder it is more difficult for a female to the average size guy obviously there are smaller guys um i do think females tend to somehow have slightly higher self-preservation but I really hope that by me doing it and sharing it across my social media channels as the girl on a bike, more girls will see it and realise that us girls can do it too. And we really can. You know, in some situations like the hard enduro, we have to upskill a little bit more and ride more with our mind and our brain to pick the right lines because we don't have the physical strength to just manhandle the bike out of a problem. We have to ride a little bit smarter. But again, that's all possible. We can do it. It's just hard. Absolutely. Yeah, and hats off to you for kind of trailblazing and hopefully encouraging more, um, more like female entrants into these competitions. Like I think you're you're absolutely right. The more that it's seen to be possible and that people see, it's like with um, a lot of the the Disney race um, character. Uh, development stuff like that there's a lot of people going oh why are there people of color in more disney films and then you hear the story of like a small child goes oh my god i could be a disney princess and oh i could do this and i could do that because they're being represented and mm -hmm. they're seeing themselves in what they're consuming yeah and i think it, it's it's probably a big part as you say is that not everybody's seeing women on bikes doing these events or or doing anything really like there's there's a lot of the more representation there is and the more people see people like themselves doing the stuff the more likely they are to engage with it and try it and get involved and you're probably influencing a a wave of people after you that are going to be going oh well i've seen someone do it so i'm going to have a go it, it's possible it, it can be done but it takes yeah. one person or a few people to start before other people will follow and it's similar to to the reason why Tacona is mental health focused is it takes one or two people to go, look, 
I think it's important that we do this. I think it means a lot that we talk more and we engage with this conversation and it isn't a weakness to be emotional. It, it takes strength to, to open up and talk, but let's make it more normal that that happens and let, let's lead by example in going, look, you can talk about stuff. You can have a cry. You can feel like shit and go, I feel like shit. It's okay. You don't need yeah. to be like a, a pillar of strength. And it, it's quite a, a transferable kind of mindset and idea that someone has to do it first for other people to, to go, oh, I didn't know you could do that. Well, I'm going to do that now. <laughs> and the more people that do it, the the more across everything, the more it happens. Um, so fingers crossed, it means that there's some 16-year-old girl looking at motorbikes going, oh, I've seen someone go across the desert. I want to go across the desert. That, and she's setting that as her yeah. mountain. And yeah. maybe someone hears this and it sparks that kind of fire in them to go, I'll go and have a go. It, it, it's not me. I, I would not go across the desert on a motorbike. I do it in a car. Because I, I'm, even though I grew up with dirt bikes, funnily enough, I still pick the car. Which brings well, me nicely on to, so you're doing rallying now? Yeah, I would, I'm really hoping at some point in the next couple of years I get to go across the desert in a car. So I've teamed up with Bowler, the, the Land Rover mm. Rally Division, the, the, the Bowler Rally car. Now, the background to this is... As a 14-year-old, I pretty much had wallpaper of Bowler Wildcats. Like, I was obsessed. Dream car. I still remember the first time I heard, like, that V8 drive past when my dad took me to Eridge Park in Kent and we saw this rally. Oh, my goodness. Like, in love with them. And I met uh, Dave Marsh, who's one of the sort of the, the spearheads, the, the rally team, in the bivouac at Rally de Morocco in Morocco. He wasn't there with Bowler and Land Rover. He was there, uh, you know, sort of on a, a more private, privateer racing side. Just chatting away with him, talking about the fact that I was there and I was racing, blah, blah, blah. And the only thing I can really remember is a Bowler Wildcat went past mid-conversation. And I, I was blatantly so unbelievably rude because little two-year-old Vanessa suddenly came out and it was like, oh my God, there's a boat. And I just got so unbelievably excited by this car and the energy. And he probably stood there being like, what the hell? Who, who are you? What's just happened? Uh, a car's just <laughs> driven past and she's turned into a two-year-old at Christmas. Anyway, fast forward a year and a half or a year, and a year and a bit. And he's now driving and developing the the bowler rally series the defender series and if you think about the bowler this is the first production rally car in the world it comes out of land rover as a rally car ready to race normally a rally car is made by a little man in his shed with his experience and knowledge and if you suddenly wanted 10 of them he'd have a heart attack you know this is a a mass able to be produced, very high performance car based on the Defender. And so um, he just started, came with the idea of why don't we get Vanessa in a rally car? And I obviously said yes, because I mean, it's just like, as Santa just called me with an express delivery, <laughs> like unbelievably excited. And um, I've sort of signed up now to do the UK rally series in a bowler defender i did the did my bars tests i've done a, a a standard land rover experience today to see what the defender can do as a base model and then bowler pretty much take it 
and say, well, Landro, you've spent the last 20 years trying to make the most sophisticated electronic system that will do everything for you and all the traction control and ABS and get a car with a really rubbish driver through anything. Bowler have gone, right, how do we get rid of all that and just get a raw 300 horsepower, 2.3 ton rally machine and put it in bowler mode electronically? Absolutely phenomenal piece of kit. So I've now done training days and my first round of the UK Defender Series. And I've got my series of, of the UK Rally Series to come. Paired up oh, with, yeah, paired up with a navigator. And it turns out being a motorcycle rider is massively helping me. Because on a motorcycle, when you're reading the terrain, that rut or rock or bump could literally change your life if you hit it. You have to be like a hawk on the terrain. And when you're in a rally car, you need to be very good at reading the terrain. But actually, I've had to downgrade my reading because the rally car will look at a bump. Well, I'll look at a bump, sorry. And the rally car will be like, what bump? <laughs> it just like eats up yeah, so like much. But your awareness of where you're putting your wheels and the vehicle from a motorcycle hugely helps you in a rally car. So it's very exciting to see, you know, how the how the series and the development goes. But it's like legal crack. <laughs> I I've wanted to go out in a rally car for absolutely ages now and this is just making me want to do it even more. Like <laughs> I had um, Richard Tuttle from Tuttle Porsche on here. Uh -huh. And um, they did uh, a, they did the Kenyan rally with they had Ken Block there and a few other guys in their cars and they did like a documentary. So he's, I was very lucky in that the day we recorded was like a week before this was being, they did like a screening in a local cinema and he went, oh, you should come to that as well. I was like, absolutely. So I went and saw this documentary on a big screen and everything. Wow. And I came away going, I really want to drive a rally car now. And then I spent like six weeks just going, what's the cheapest way I can have a go in a rally car? And now you're just going, it's great. It's the best thing you'll ever do. I'm like, shit i've got to spend some money again um, <laughs> i guess the there's so much difference between a bike and a rally and a car though like as you yeah. said with the bumps like you're not gonna hit a stone it's gonna be a big stone if it's gonna do it and it flip you off and off you're out even mm. if you do crash you're in a cage like the other side of it is you've got a person sat next to you telling you where to go as well you've not got to read while you do all this have you found that that's hard to get used to or has it helped going oh i could just concentrate on the driving bit well when dave marsh called me and said am i up for it i was just like how do you even know i can drive and he was like well you've got the aptitude to ride a motorbike in the desert in sand dunes whilst doing your own navigation all on your own i'm pretty sure you've got the aptitude to drive a rally car and i'm like okay i guess um, it's incredible <laughs> the, the relationship that you build with your navigator really quickly. Your personalities have to align. I'm, I'm paired up with Chris Cummings, who actually won the series last year. So I'm with a, an incredible navigator. Uh, and you are so codependent on each other. Obviously, his life is in my driving, but I, his ability to read the road and give me instructions on, on the, the terrain that's coming is so critical to me being able to, to drive effectively. Um, the, the whole learning of a motorbike and where you're putting your wheels and that traction, there's a lot of things that will help you. Like 
you can get a puncture pretty easy in a rally car. If you hit a rock wrong, you've got multiple ton going into that tire. So my ability to really see things because I'm used to it being a survival life or death kind of thing on a motorbike hugely helps helps in a car and the fact that I'm really only I'm using my fingers in little brackets here having to focus on the driving frees up so much of my capacity that I used to have to use on navigating that gives you even more energy to to drive better yeah 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 I mean it, it's, it's incredible like taking the blinkers off a bit yeah I imagine it, it's it's such a like a a high intense thing as well like you can't stop concentrating for a second same with your mm. your enduro biking as well like yeah you must be exhausted by the time you finish a stage yeah Just from the, the constant concentration definitely but there's almost a way that i'm not exhausted because i'm used to getting to the end of a stage having physically been abused by being on a motorbike Whereas in a car, you haven't got the same physical side. You are being rattled around and you're strapped in like a two-year-old. You've got five-point harness. Your head and neck are strapped to your back. You, you literally cannot move other than your, your hands to steer. Uh, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, oh, it's literally like legal crack. It's just so good. My next round <laughs> is in a week and a half's time. And I cannot wait to get back in that car. Just the little things, like when you turn the engine on, the purr of the sound of it, like just, it's like orgasmic. It's absolutely incredible. If you don't know what a, a Bowler Defender rally car looks like, get on Google, Google Image. They're phenomenal. Are they going to be based on the new Defender now? Yes, they are the new Defender. So you're, you're not in the old aluminium body rattled tin Defenders, you're in the, the new shape one. Yeah, I don't think I've seen one of Bowler's new defenders. So this actually. is I've seen this, the old ones. Yeah, this is a rally car that has air conditioning and a radio that Bluetooths to your phone, so you could put your Spotify on while you're waiting for your stage to start. Like this is how <laughs> you rally. You know, I'm waiting for these oh. summer months. Like, we'll we'll apparently you're like pull up to the marshal at the front gate. Your air conditioning will be on. It'll be boiling outside, and the marshals are like trying to get their head in your car to get a bit of your cool air. <laughs> this is what I've been pre-warned by the team. Oh, I've just had the idea for like the best TikTok as well. Like it's going to be like the bowler comes past and then just Freebird is blaring out the speakers as you go flying. Back. <laughs> Yeah, and just a sticker on the back that says "Sorry, Officer Freebird was playing" or something like that. <laughs> oh, brilliant! It sounds like so much fun, and I'm very jealous. Where? So, by the time this episode comes out, you'll have done the rally that you just mentioned. Yeah, because um, it'll be in probably four or five weeks, something like that. Where can we see the rallies? Like, what stages have we got in the country that we can pop along to and see you drive? Yeah, there's loads of stages you can come to. Let me pause the audio for a moment and I'll pull up the names. So the, the one in two weeks is Bilth. So we've got, the, the best thing to do is to get onto the Bowler website, which is B-O-W-L-E-R, in case anyone's wondering how I say it, Bowler website. And they have the 2023 calendar for the Defender series on there. So on the um, 18th of June, there's one in Scotland. 8th of July, there is, uh, Nikki Grist Rally, which I believe is Yorkshire or North Wales. There's one 22nd, 23rd of September, which is actually my birthday. Uh, there's one in Cumbria in October and another one in Scotland in November. So there's a few of them 
around the country. It's sort of Wales, Yorkshire and Scotland. And yeah, absolutely, you can come and watch. They will be very exciting events to see because there will be all different arrays of rally cars competing. Oh, I bet. Like, the Nicky Griss one sounds fun because obviously he was McRae's um, co-driver, wasn't he? Mm. I've just popped up the Bowler website now just to see if I can see. And the first thing that pops up is a video of the new Defender rally car, I suppose. Oh, what a bit of kit. incredible. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, I'm going to see if there's any that I can get to because that will be a lot of fun to come and watch. Amazing. And just the atmosphere around rallying is like so much. It's just so fun and exciting and thrilling. And like anybody that's been to the Festival of Speed and gone up to the rally circuit, mm. it's just a different kind of motorsport, isn't it? It's not the same as circuit racing or anything like that. It's you versus the elements at maximum attack. And it's doing everything it's, it can to try and stop you from going quickly. And you're doing everything you can to do it as quickly as possible. Like, what other kind of motorsport is as exciting? <laughs> yep. I'd agree with uh, that. Other than enduro biking, I suppose. But <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, the, 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 the um, desert rally. My, my dream now is to try and do a desert rally in a, in a bowler. But we will see. Well, fingers crossed. Because yeah. that would be like another bucket list tick then wouldn't it yeah big um, time yeah i think that's probably quite a nice point for us to kind of wrap up i've had you for over an hour which is good going on your half because <laughs> i'm a pain in the ass um but yeah i genuinely it's been such an interesting story and so inspiring to just to go through that tale of kind of overcoming the challenges and the the difficulties and it's not even like one of those it's like oh it was really hard to be a woman it was like no you nearly died on several times <laughs> that's that's the the hardness <laughs> level that we're working at here it's ah! and you're a woman you. <laughs> yeah my headphones just died oh, that's how long oh, we've been talking that's a sign really isn't it so it means that you've got double audio on this guy that's, that's okay. okay we'll wrap it up there then yeah let before me t- i go turn you right down and then maybe it won't hear you fingers crossed um where can people find you? If you want to find me, you can go on any of the social media platforms and look for The Girl on a Bike or Vanessa Ruck and you'll find me. Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, although I feel like a bit of a granny on TikTok, YouTube, LinkedIn. So yeah, search The Girl on a Bike and my inbox is always open if anyone has any questions for me or just wants to say hi and share their story. Amazing. Well, again, thank you so much, Vanessa. It's been an absolute pleasure. Mm-hmm.